Welcome to Access Control, a podcast providing practical security advice for startups, advice from people who've been there. Each episode, we'll interview a leader in their field and learn best practices and practical tips for securing your org. For today's episode, I'll be talking to LVH. LVH is a principal and co-founder of Latacora. Latacora is a security consultancy that's focused on creating security practice and maturing in-house capabilities. Teleport has been partnering with Latacora for a number of years, and we found that their process and insights valuable as we've grown. I was fortunate enough to work in the same office as LVH during my time at Rackspace. Along with enjoying LVH's Hack Day projects, I always learned a lot about new security and encryption technologies. LVH, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, to kick things off, uh, can you tell me what it means to have a security practice in a startup? Great question. So I think one of the original challenges that we saw when we started Latacora is that there's lots of startups who are, who are trying to do security things. For many of them, that might mean I'm going to go get a pen test, right? For many of them, unfortunately, you go look at that pen test and the results, uh, the, the impact on security for that company, you go look a year later, it's not necessarily that valuable. And I don't think that's an intrinsic problem with pen tests. I think that's uh, an intrinsic problem with the context of the pen test. Because if you go look at a, a, you know, a large mature organization with a large mature security organization or a large secure security practice, they're going to be looking at pen tests in a completely different way. It's not the entirety of their of their security practice. They're looking at you know a pen test almost in the sense of like hypothesis validation. It's like I, I have this idea of what might be wrong, and I'm going to ask a third party to go double check and go make sure you know that I have a you know that I, I have a decent handle on that. And so as a consequence, you you know you can't really expect to get the same results if you you know just copy the I'm doing the pen testy part, but not do you know the rest of the uh, the rest of the proverbial owl. The idea behind uh, a running a security practice, I mean, it's, it's very broad, but effectively it is identify and then mitigate risk for the company. What does that mean? Well, that can take a lot of uh, a lot of angles, which is one of the reasons why I think it's very challenging for individuals to do that. One of the harder jobs in security is go be the first security person at a startup. It's not a, a because you know people are just not capable or something. It's because one of the one of the issues is we say security person at a startup, but what does that mean? Like startups don't have a security security person problem. They have an application security problem on Monday. They have a cloud security problem on Tuesday. They have an IT security problem on Wednesday. They have a compliance problem on Thursday, you know, a network security problem on Friday, right? And I say application security as if that's one field. You know, the person who is going to be competent at auditing your web front end or your mobile application, or in the case of Teleport, uh, you know, a, a bunch of uh, Go backend services uh, with fairly complex cryptography going on, they're, they're all different people, right? And you can't reasonably expect, you might be able to get like one or two expertises. If you're really lucky, you're gonna get three or four, but you can't reasonably expect someone to cover all of those fields. Like there's nobody who's gonna be excellent at, you know, AWS and Azure and GCP, and also knows everything that there is to know about SOC 2 and HIPAA and, you know, whatever it might be. And not every startup is gonna need every one of those. You could hire the world's best Kubernetes security expert the day that you have an Android security problem, it doesn't really help you. I guess I don't really answer your question directly, but um, the idea behind it, uh, what is a security practice Practice that identifies and mitigates risk for an organization? What does that mean specifically for us? I mean, we do that with, uh, for, we do that for startups. So we're going to be doing startup looking things, right? Like we're going to be doing that on AWS most of the time, or at least on a major cloud provider. We're going to be doing that typically with reasonably modern languages. Most of our customers are on, I don't know, Python or Go or something, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's, there a stage in which people come to you there's sort of an inflection point they're like okay i understand that what security practice is 
I need to bring on an external party. At what point do you see people sort of pick up the phone? It used to be the case that we started working with people where the low watermark was about 12 engineers. And the reason for that is mostly that because Vladikora's remit is so broad, it has a tendency to expand horizontally. And by which I mean, for example, you know, we have a compliance practice and we have uh, a cloud security practice and we have an AppSec practice, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no, there's no particular reason why a new practice wouldn't exist. So it tends to expand a little bit. And as a consequence, there's a, a minimum viable team on the other end to be able to just drink from the fire hose. And it was always really hard to kind of pick, like, could we have done a smaller version that only did AppSec? Yeah, but then we only did AppSec. And the problem that we wanted to solve was go do security services for startups, like go build security practices for startups. And so you can't do that by only caring about AppSec. And so it you know, can tend to naturally expand. What we've been doing in, I want to say that we've been building it out maybe for the last year or so, is a program that we call Vladikora Jumpstart, uh, where we're working with far smaller customers. So the smallest customer that we started with, I believe they had three people when we started. And there we're really focused on like just the advisory work uh, and then all of the stuff that all of the stuff that we have tooling for in the background, because it's relatively easy, like it's expensive for us to maintain and develop, but it's, you know, it's reasonably economical for us to go run for uh, an extra customer. And then really just focusing on the advisory work because, you know, they're still building the app. So doing a full bore assessment for six weeks, like it's kind of pointless because I'm going to be looking at a bunch of code that's not going to exist a year from now, helping customers build that. And the one thing I've been surprised about with Lottacore is the, the range. We've, so we started at like the 15 people. We had a couple of companies go public under our watch, which I would not have ever, ever believed if you, if you told me that when we started. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty broad range. I would say that if you're trying to hire a security person, the industry standard ratio seems to be somewhere like one in 25 to one in 50, depending on like how security sensitive and how tightly regulated you are. Of course, you have all the aforementioned problems of, you know, which, secu- which security person are you going to hire? Sort of like, you know, the minimum viable security set might be, I don't know, three or four. So for people who are thinking of hiring someone and especially bringing in external consultants, what sort of questions do you look for them to ask um, when they're just bringing you on board? So I can tell you what makes an easy letter core customer, which is a slightly different, uh, a slightly different interpretation of the question. But one of the, because our remit is so broad, we're trying to find the commonalities between customers and then like exploit those mercilessly. Uh, and therefore it's like AWS, right? And if somebody came to us with Oracle Cloud, I'm not saying that I have a problem with Oracle Cloud. I'm saying I don't have enough Oracle Cloud customers to warrant building a Oracle Cloud practice internally, right? Yeah. And so similarly, you know, GitHub, right? Like if you're using uh, Perforce, fortunately startups don't use a lot of Perforce, but like if you're using Perforce, then I don't, I don't have a way to engage with that. And same thing with Slack, same thing with Google Workspaces as opposed to Office 365, something like that. When you're evaluating a consultant, what sort of things should people ask? There's definitely some services out there that I have some questions about. And I think one of the, the bigger ones are, you know, like what, what's the breadth of services that you're, that you're offering? And then the second part is, what does that billing model look like? Because one of the flaws that we've seen with customers, a lot of core is flat rate. The reason that it's flat rate is because I never want to be responsible when somebody decided that a particular feature is like, yeah, you know, is this dangerous? Is this not dangerous? Well, I don't know, but I'm not going to spend 10 grand to find out. But the benefit of, of having us, like we're, we're, a lot of what we do is modeled after the sort of like perfect mythical unicorn security person that was able to do everything, like the, all those fields. 
obviously we're a service, so we get to cheat a little bit on the inside. We don't have a lot of unicorns. And so we kind of spread the load across those. I would say that be very careful about what the, the things are that a service is allegedly good at. And there's plenty of, like, there's nothing wrong with someone just being a compliance person, right? Like there's nothing, like if you need compliance, go do compliance, right? Like there's so many people who, so many companies, especially these days, like, SOC 2 is table stakes for so many uh, enterprise deals, like even smaller and smaller business to business deals. There's nothing wrong with just going to go, go get your, your SOC 2. I would generally say that most security services are designed by and for security people and for security people at large companies. I do have yeah. my doubts that, you know, if you, let me put it this way, let's say that you buy um, EDR, Enterprise Detection and Response thing. They're going to go install a bunch of agents on all your endpoints and a bunch of log management. And it's going to go back to their, their SIM and they're going to do uh, all sorts of analysis on that and maybe alert you. If you don't have a security practice internally, what are you going to do with that information, right? Like if you don't have someone who is also doing the work to make sure that, you know, I don't want to say full beyond corp, is also doing the work that you could reasonably lock out. Let's say the machine's compromised. Okay, what do you do? Right? Like if you don't have the security practice to make sure that you could reasonably effectively action on that information, then congratulations, you just paid a bunch of money for a thing that just gives you anxiety. You know, the only thing worse than not getting uh, alerts is getting alerts. And like, it doesn't seem useful. And keep in mind, I'm not saying EDR is bad, right? Like EDR, there's classes of companies for whom EDR is great. I don't think it should be your first security purchase. And same thing yeah. as like, you know, buying your own SIM. Like I'm, I think that's a really questionable expenditure. There's this like bathtub curve of value provided. The first couple of dollars that you spend on a SIM are fantastic, right? Like the first time that you get any, you go from no visibility to, you know, minimum viable visibility. That's fantastic. And then there's a giant chasm of Splunk spend where you're not, and I'm not trying to rant about Splunk, right? Like Splunk is, is a fantastic tool. They're one of the best in the industry, but like you could spend so much money on Splunk and get zero freaking value out of it. I see plenty of startups do that. And so like, you can't, you gotta have the, the backing, right? You need like a, a senior security leader to go actually go build out the program so that it makes sense for you to have a Splunk and that you have something for that to plug into and, and go affect organizational change. Because if it's just a thing that produces Slack alerts, then I mean, I don't know, you could, just, you could do that yourself. You don't spend money on anything. Once you start an engagement, um, what are some of the first things you look out for? Uh, we start by doing what we call a security architecture review, where we basically just interview everyone. Because one of the observations is that a lot of the audits are designed to be, and so like they're, they're audits, they're, in, they're intentionally validating. But one of the things that we found is like, I'm not saying that's not useful, but it's useful in a different context. It's useful for the hypothesis validation that I hinted at earlier. We just interview a bunch of people to begin with and uh, just ask them questions like, you know, what's keeping you up at night, right? Like what's the code that, what's the code that you're worried about? You know, we've got like a whole host of questions across like application from really high level stuff. Who are your users, right? Like if you had to describe to me, like who are the stakeholders and who cares that this entire application even exists? Um, walk me through that. What do they do with this? How do they engage with it? All the way down to like pretty, pretty detailed stuff. Like, you know, can you give me a reasonable description why you think that you don't, you're not vulnerable to, to, I don't know, systemic server-side request forgery attacks? Right? And the answer might be, we don't have a webhook functionality or anything like that. Or it might be like, you know, we deployed smokescreen or like, I don't care what the answer is necessarily, but we're trying to figure out like across a super broad set of things, including mobile device management, like bring your own device or are they like, you know, tightly locked down Chromebooks and, or, or something in between. And so we're trying to do like a super broad uh, assessment across all of those. And there are things, parts of that that we're gonna be able to, either we have to validate because the client might not know 
So for example, you know, we started asking, are you using multiple AWS accounts? when AWS organizations was still super new and almost nobody was using it. And so a lot of clients were like, I didn't realize that, that I mm -hmm. suppose that's possible, but I don't think so. There are things that we have to go like validate, like did anyone actually do that? You know, same thing on the OPSEC side, same thing on the CorpSec side, but most of it is really just asking questions because it's not an adversarial setting. Nobody's trying to swindle me into believing that your security practice is better than it is. Kind of like lying to your lawyer or lying to your doctor, like it's not exactly a plan for success. And so that's that's kind of how we start. And that gives us like that informs the roadmap. And then from the roadmap, we start doing things like, hey, let's do an application security assessment. We did uh, a bunch uh, recently for, for Teleport or, you know, let's go. I, I mentioned application security assessment. It's not the only one like, you know, do a cloud security assessment. Let's go. You know, you've got this many apps with this many permissions in your Google workspaces. Let's go get that number down, you know, that sort of thing. But then it's the point is like it's informed by a business risk. Right. Like I could just randomly go do that or I could say, hey, sounds like Google Drive is super important for you. Tons of super sensitive information is in there. Sounds like I should be looking, going through that with a fine tooth comb. Different customer might barely use Google Drive and like doesn't really, doesn't really care to barely use Gmail. You know, they, they're lucky if they use the calendar once a week and like, okay, great. Maybe I'm not that worried about how many authorized apps you got. I think this is a good segue into a post you shared with me, which is the SOC 2 starting seven. And I think it covered a bunch of key areas for also sort of compliance and the SOC 2 process and things that which are not necessarily security, they're more compliance. We can probably like touch on all seven of them, but just to give people a high level, like what exactly is SOC 2 for people who aren't familiar? SOC 2 is a auditing standard or an audit that you, I mean, people use the term to mean uh, slightly different, but related things. So typically when a company talks about their SOC 2, they're talking about their SOC 2 audit, mm -hmm. meaning either a type one, which is a point in time assessment of the organization and a type two, which is um, covering a, a, a larger amount of time. And historically, that's always been a year, but these days, you know, we've seen six months, nine months, even three months. The way that I would describe SOC 2 in the minimum number of words is do you do what you say and do you say what you do? So the idea is do you have policy work that reasonably describes your what you actually go do? And then do you actually go do those things? And where possible, do you have um, evidence to provide to prove that you're actually doing those things? One of the things that people don't always get about SOC 2 is like I, I feel like SOC 2 has, has gotten a little bit of a people say it with some fear in their voices sometimes, I get the impression. And I understand why, because like if they were to somehow miss out, uh, miss out on it, like if you're a B2B SaaS, like that's, I don't want to say a death sentence, but like it's really hard uh, to sell without um, getting a SOC 2. I think part of that is because it's become so commoditized. Like, even five years ago when we were when we were starting Lanacora, I feel like SOC 2 was, if you sold to a major financial institution, you cared about SOC 2, maybe. One of the interesting things is SOC 2 is issued by the AICPA, like the uh, organization of, yes, of tax accountants. Which, you know, it sort of makes sense if you consider, you know, obviously there are forensic accountants who are trying to find fraud. And so they're, they're used to this concept of auditing, but it's still kind of interesting that your SOC 2 is, is they're a CPA, they can technically do your taxes. You know, they're, they're probably more specialized than that, but technically, regardless, like, I, you know, it really doesn't say a lot, right? Like SOC 2 is not, and I don't mean this in a bad way, like it's not that high a bar. It really just says, have you thought about what you do? Do you say what you do? And do you then prove that you actually do that thing, right? Um, for that reason, uh, it, I would say that, you know, I don't think that SOC 2 is, is that, I don't want to say that hard, like it, it's not like it takes no effort at, at all, but it's, it's a reasonably low bar. And, and if you do it well, 
the, the thing that I always find, not, maybe not frustrating, but uh, certainly a missed opportunity. There's this like historical divide sometimes between compliance people and security people or compliance people and like uh, developers where it's like, you know, developers like, why are you making me write down all this like encryption policy stuff? I'm going to go do good things. Why can't you just trust me to do my job? And, you know, the answer is because lots of people screw it up and you might not have thought about this as much as you because you think you're going to do a good job. But like, have you actually thought about what you're doing and why? And have you then written that down? And like, how, when you say, I'm only going to use AAS 256 GCL, this is my, one of my favorite examples. Some of the people that we, so we've heard, I think twice, maybe three times, where somebody had their, they, they eventually got the report because the report, SOC 2 report does not mean pass with flying colors. There's three levels and, and the words are escaping me right now, but it's basically like, you know, pass with no comments, pass with comments, fail. You have to pull some to fail. Pretty much do an outright, outright fraud. Like you would know if you were going to fail. You know, most of them are just passed with no comments because they end up getting, you know, remediated during either SOC 2 prep or during the type 1. Sometimes there is pass with comments. Really, the, the, the bar that's being set there is, is relatively low. So there's pretty much two standards that, get, um, that are relevant here. There's the TSC, SSAE18. Honestly, for compliance documents, they're relatively, like, I, they're not, like, impenetrable. You could go read them. You could reasonably, you know, learn something from them. The vast majority of the time, though, like, they have, they describe some organizational controls. They describe a handful of, of technical controls, like, I think it's the TSC that mandates anti-malware, for example. The level of specificity, like, a, I think a technical person would not describe those controls as specific. Right. It's just saying like you need some anti-malware. Like, okay, well, I got a bunch of Windows machines. They're running Windows Defender. Yeah, yeah. Is that not anti-malware? I think it's anti-malware. It's described as anti-malware. And if you're even running a Mac, like that's where it gets weird. Um, lots of people buy, you know, anti-malware software uh, or like antivirus for Mac because Macs don't come with antivirus. And like that's not really true. There's like Xprotect, which Apple builds as anti-malware, right? Like it's, you know, if if Windows Defender accounts. Xprotect definitely counts. Uh, and so there's you know, little things like that. You effectively write down what your controls are. An auditor will go through them with you, kind of re will review them, make sure that they're, you know, if they're auditing to a specific standard, which almost always is going to be a combination of TSC and, and SSA 18, technically you don't have to, but that's de facto what happens, at least for smaller organizations. You know, they're going to come back and say like, hey, give me evidence for controls XYZ and the other thing. Uh, and so, for example, you might say, we will check out our cloud infrastructure and audit it against common known misconfigurations. And we will do so on a weekly basis or something. And then your auditor will say, great, prove that you did it on a weekly basis. And you're, the evidence for that can be really broad, right? Because at that point, you're talking to a human, right? You just pretty much have to convince the auditor that they're going to sign their name to something that is reasonably descriptive of reality. If you say, like, yeah, we've got this bot. It runs. It dumps some stuff into Slack that's, it's happening on a weekly basis. Let's scroll up and, and that's fine, right? Like there's no, you know, there's no like specific technologies that you need or like, you know, you don't need endpoint monitoring or, uh, you know, there's tons of stuff that I've heard people say. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite ones was, hey, uh, the client asks us, what do you like for host intrusion detection systems? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't like any host intrusion detection system. Why would you ever like that? Would you, why would you ever, in the context of this particular customer, it really made no sense for them to deploy HIDs. I'm not, you know, casting aspersions generally in the direction of HIDS. And it turns out that it was literally just like a misunderstanding with their auditor, where their auditor was like, says here, in, you know, you got this document with inventory. It says you got a bunch of hosts. It says here that you're going to do something to do intrusion detection, that you're going to detect intrusions for them. Uh, and it's like an MTDR and an MTDD. So therefore, it stands to reason you need some kind of system 
to detect the intrusion on the host. And so like literally they just like stumbled on host intrusion detection system, uh, not realizing that it was a term of art and like, you know, me nearly blowing a vein in my forehead. Turns out it was fine. We, uh, you know, uh, they ended up having intrusion detection systems that were to the auditor's satisfaction. Um, but that's that's really common for, for SOC 2. If auditors will say a thing, uh, it will get interpreted very literally and it's not necessarily the thing that is actually required. You know, it could be that that same auditor like last week was working on uh, an organization like a thousand times the size or last week they were working on a grocery store, right? Like, and, and the controls that they come up with are completely different and make no sense for, for that particular organization. So there's a little bit of care and feeding from that process. Yeah. So your blog post covers these sort of seven, I think they're like just great best practices for any organization. And I think the thing that's sort of interesting is it sort of covers a lot of, in at least the world of teleport, like actually just IT administration. It's not a developer or cryptography or what you'd necessarily think of as traditional security. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Uh, and, and I think part of the reason for that is that because SOC 2 is coming, you know, SOC 2 is a compliance standard and a lot of the compliance standards are focused on, you know, what are people going to do? Like what sort of access control mechanisms do you have? Like, how do you know that that is actually happening? As a consequence, a lot of the controls end up being more in what you might call the IT space. So we actually have a, a fully fledged pillar of our, so we've got application security, SecOps, which is, you know, cloud security and, and a couple of other things, uh, what we call CorpSec, corporate security, which is mostly like IT, so mobile device management security and, you know, managing, you know, Google Auth and, and et cetera, et cetera. As a security person, I would love to be known for the ninja alien space hacker wizard vulnerabilities that we find. But the truth of the matter is that I, I think by body count, CorpSec might be leading because uh, they just find... A lot of the, the, the problems that they find just end up being like these company ending events for relatively what feels like a relatively minor, uh, you know, relatively minor misconfiguration going from like, for example, in the AppSec side, let's say that we find like cross-site scripting, right? Is that bad? Sure. I mean, depends on context. Sometimes it might not be pretty much nothing, but we'll find this bug and like, okay, fine, you fix it. But like there was no, it was, it's pretty difficult to go from cross-site scripting vulnerability to startup is over now. Whereas, for example, the one of my favorite bugs that OpSec keeps finding is like uh, a self-service Google group that allows you to like add yourself to that. And then there is a critical, some like critical third-party service that is only protected by a password. And they have an account recovery process involving that group. Uh, and so you add yourself to that and suddenly you've like escalated privileges like that. That one we found way worse, like in terms of actually company, uh, like company impact. Uh, and then to your point, a lot of it is just really important from a compliance, like from a GRC, so um, from a governance, compliance, and, and regulatory perspective. It ends up being yeah really helpful. And so we have we have a full time compliance person who is start, actually started their career as an application, like as a security engineer. Like they're they're like properly technical. Then they went on to doing a really hairy solving a really hairy compliance problem, and now they do that for for our customers. I think one thing that stood out to me in this blog post, as far as recommendation, was. I think two recommendations. One is using multiple AWS accounts. And I think the second one is making sure CloudTrail is turned on and use Assume role. Can you sort of say why those two things are so important for many startups who run on AWS? The main reason behind the multiple accounts thing is that because we found that in many cases, it's really hard to get people to like do a great job at managing AWS IAM. Like it's, it's far, like people just like write a particular permission. It's super broad. And then they just keep adding, uh, keep adding infrastructure and infrastructure and infrastructure. And before you know it, that ability to read from every S3 bucket is suddenly far more terrifying than it was when you agreed to it. Add to that, that, you know, the tooling within AWS for 
minimizing your permissions is nowhere near as mature as it is in, you know, if you go look at GCP, GCP decided to do a very good job at solving a simpler problem. And AWS, you know, has taken much longer to solve a much harder problem. Um, by which I mean, you know, yeah. the GCP, because the, the AWS gives you far more granularity for expressing, like there are plenty of, of, of very granular IAM constraints that you can express in AWS that GCP just has no, no option for at all. And so when I say, yeah, GCP has like a button you can log in, I'm sure anyone who's used GCP for any amount of time logged in, looked at, you know, the IAM, there's a button there that says like, you know, remove, I forget what it says, like remove permissions or something. It's like, it's very, you know, very user-friendly. It's very hard to miss, honestly. And part of the reason they can do that is simply because they have fewer permissions uh, and like they have a far less complex constellation. One particularly hard boundary for, for AWS IAM is multiple accounts. Uh, and we found that like, it's a very good sort of first pass where, you know, give, give your engineer, like if your engineers want to mess with a particular service, great, give them an AWS account, right? Like it's reasonably well sandboxed. doesn't really matter if, you know, uh, if you, you know, you're clicking around in the AWS console and it tells you it's making like, you know, I'm just going to create this one cluster. Like, yeah, no, you created a cluster and a VPC and a security group and like five IAM roles and like you created a bunch of stuff and I don't have, um, you know, I don't have uh, a mastery over everything that just got created. So it's also pretty hard to go tear down again. But yeah. the wizard is, nice, is, you know, it's user-friendly enough. Like you can't just tell someone like, you're not allowed to mess with a service until it's fully terraformed. You basically just told them not to go mess with services. And so we think that ABS accounts are a really, really fruitful way to get just like a super basic, you know, almost like a, a product level or like a, a, you know, like per engineer or, you know, dividing dev and prod. Uh, and conveniently, it means that you don't have to do a ton of work now because you're already thinking about like, am I, hopefully you're thinking about whether you're Endeavor prod uh, before you drop the tables. So you're already thinking about that. So it's not like that much of a, an extra, you know, it's not much extra mental bandwidth that uh, that's being asked for. But then on the flip side, from a security perspective, I have an extremely strong guarantee that things are going to stay separate. And similarly, if uh, an auditor comes and asks, then we can say, uh, you know, we don't have to talk, we don't have to spend hours talking about AWS IAM policies. We can just say, yeah, separate accounts, like completely separate off domains. Like it's not even, not even a problem. So it's just a, a question of how much value do you get for how much work you have to put into it. And it, it, multiple AWS accounts is such a no-brainer. For the prod account, I think we do this, that we always, you, if you use assume role, you get more audit events as opposed to a shared login or other? There's a bunch of reasons for why we like Assume Role. So one of them is if you're, well, one problem is if you're using AWS access keys directly, then they're somewhat necessarily in your home directory, generally in plain text. Uh, I know you mentioned you'd like to talk about supply chain attacks at some point. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and leave that one for a little bit later. To your point, you mentioned that you get more audit events. That is certainly true. Particularly, it becomes easier to start doing the IAM minimization down the road. Because one of the things, like back when um, you know the segment blog uh, segment was before they got acquired, they had these wonderful articles about their AWS environment. And their AWS environment was a thing of beauty. Uh, I'm mean, sorry, I say was. I assume it still is. You know, they were doing all of these super great things. But one of the challenges with it is that they're showing you the end state, right? And I get why. That's not a criticism, right? I get why they're showing you the end state. They want to entice people to come work at Segment, and like it was pretty effective. The thing that they're you know that they're not talking about is kind of or very often is how do you get there, right? Like what are the minimal viable things that I have to go do along the path that I can plausibly go get engineers to do tomorrow that are going to materially mitigate risk? Uh, account separation, fantastic for the first example. Assume role is the next step. Why? Because if you've got a bunch of roles that you're using reasonably judiciously, even if you're assigning all of them star star, 
just by the fact that you're separating them out and they have a name that I can go reason about, then it becomes a lot easier down the line. You don't have to make all of the decisions and know what every single person in your company ever needs. You could either, you know, you can go do that down the line. You can do that one at a time, project where we're doing uh, analysis on CloudTrail um, in order to like infer what the, similar to what GCP is doing, like infer what the permissions ought to be. And you can do all of those things, but you don't have to do them today. Right. And so a lot of our programs are kind of like set up so that you can you, you got to start somewhere. Right. And like if you you start by looking at like look what segment has, then I think it's yeah. really likely that you just sort of give up because, uh, you know, it takes a while to get there. It's, it's a really impressive setup. I'll have to look that up. Shifting gears to another one of the starting seven, you kind of mentioned vendor sec. And I think the thing that sort of piqued my interest in this is how you talked about even possibly evaluating which Chrome extensions can do certain things on the DOM, which was sort of a more fine-grained review than I've seen previously. Can you talk about what vendors you look out for and things you might think, hmm, that's a bit suspicious? It is definitely true that we, like our vendor sec process is more, more in-depth than a lot of others. Um, so for example, we found like SAML bugs, uh, vendors for clients, and I, I doubt that the median vendor sec process involves auditing for sample bugs. That said, for the web extension one, that one's actually reasonably easy. So there's a tool called CRXcavator. And because CRX is the Chrome extension, um, the Chrome extension extension. Uh, so if you if you were to ship a Chrome extension, it would be in a file and that file would be called a CRX, a CRX file. So CRX, and the, if you've never written a Chrome extension before, the access that the Chrome extension has is described in a file called manifest.json, which exists in the top level of that, or I mean, it internalizes the file. You can just simply inspect that and then know if I allow this um, Chrome extension, then it's gonna have uh, effectively cross-site scripting on every website. It's gonna be, you know, that's the, the, the default, like the star, uh, star permission is basically on every origin give me the permission to inject code, which at the end of the day is what a cross-site scripting attack is all about. There are mitigations though. So like, for example, there are some extensions that I'm not comfortable running in my production Chrome profile. So I have a separate Chrome profile where that I just use for, you know, that. Uh, and, and, you know, there might be like a, like a, there's like a video downloader extension or something. Yeah. And so, because it works on pretty much everything that uses the video, you know, the video tag, uh, it tries to have access on every page and like, yeah, I'm not giving it access to, you know, a lot of chorus lock. You used someone who had a social sharing web extension that was very popular and they made money by rewriting everyone's links to Amazon affiliates back when this was a possible thing. That, yeah. that To show you some of the, I mean, and that's not great if you can like rewrite a link. So a, a Chrome extension can do pretty much anything that Chrome can. Another thing that kind of comes up a few times is, is it risky to run one password Chrome extension or is it better to use the Mac app or just use it on your phone? Uh, that's a rough one. Um, so it's not near the top of my list of things that I'm super worried about. That said, uh, I don't run the Chrome extension. I, okay. uh, so I run, this is not necessarily an endorsement, but for what it's worth, I do two things. I use Chrome's built-in password manager combined with pass uh, on the CLI. Uh, which is just a like a command line password manager. It's not, uh, you know, not particularly fancy. Does what it says on the tin, and I move on with yeah. my life. I mean, I guess talking about secrets. Another thing you recommend is using AWS Vault, which I think is a project from Ninety Nine Designs. Ninety Nine Designs, yeah. Describe this project. Yeah, absolutely. So AWS Vault is a uh, so it's Ninety Nine Designs slash AWS Vault on um, on GitHub. And it's effectively a 
it's a stepping stone. It's a perfect example of that, like uh, slowly improving your I am practice thing that I was mentioning, because it's a stepping stone where it's really easy to get started. What it does is it takes your existing AWS access key ID, uh, sort of the thing that starts with uh, AKIA um, and, and your, your secret, and it puts it into the closest equivalent to your operating system's uh, keychain. So if you're on macOS, it's literally, you know, keychain. And then what it does is when you, um, you can use it to assume roles, which I recommend that you always do because there's weird little pitfall if you're, uh, if you're not using roles that I won't go into too deep. But then in order to go use that credential, what you do is AWS vaults exec name of a particular AWS profile, which typically maps to a role. And then you do dash dash, you know, uh, I don't know, SDS, AWS SDS get caller identity, which is the AWS command for like, tell me who you think I am. The beauty of uh, AWS vault is that it will take that permanent credential living in your keychain, ask Amazon or AWS to transmute it into a temporary credential, and then go use the temporary credential. Uh, another benefit is that you can start doing things like, you know, let's say that you're rolling out those multiple roles and you don't have them right now. Right now, everything's administrator access because of course it is. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that in like a, a snide way. Like, yeah, you're a brand new startup. Like it, it's not, don't feel bad about it. Like nobody has decent access control. What you can do is you can start getting into the habit of like, for example, AWS vault, AWS vault exec prod deploy dash dash Terraform apply or whatever, right? And even though right now all of those roles are attached to exactly the same, like one account, one role, one everything. Down the line, you modify your profile, your AWS profile. Uh, so it, it also integrates neatly with AWS existing, like it's not its own configuration. It integrates neatly with like uh, AWS's existing profile concepts uh, in their configuration files. Down the line, you can effectively tra transparently or pretty close to transparently without having to modify what people type on the command line, introduce new roles, uh, introduce you know potentially new regions, accounts, et cetera. Uh, and so if, uh, a thing that we, we have multiple scripts called uh, manage underscore profiles, uh, we'll go edit the, um, that, that config file and modify it to be the thing that we need. Uh, and so from that perspective, as long as you regularly run that, run that script, then your process never changes, but you just shed a ton of permissions and you had to do nothing which is nice. It's, it's, I like the, I like the stepping stone. Yeah. And especially as your team grows, it's like a nice, exactly. easy ramp for them. If you get used to this tool, it's not a huge exactly. change in your process. We probably have a whole topic almost around centralized logging, but I'm going to segue in this into another question. So, cause we use Latacora, I've noticed in um, our AWS account, we have uh -huh. the AWS audit role um, in our sort of cloud trail logs. What does, like, what do you look out for? and monitor from that role? We do two types of access or two types of, of, of auditing. And I'm using the term, I know that we talked about SOC 2, but I'm using the term in the technical sense, I'm not using the term in the uh, CPA sense. One is what I would call resource level, uh, and the other is event level. So event level will be ingest CloudTrail and you know learn, learn that somebody is logging in with the AWS root account or something like that. And the other one is like literally call APIs like, I don't know, AWS CC2 described instances. And the audit role is for the latter. So uh, we use it to uh, go call you know, a, a pile of a APIs, uh, save all that information. Um, we actually have a, a really cool internal tool. If you wanted to call all the AWS APIs, it's actually a graph. You can't just like call them directly because they all have dependence, uh, dependencies. They have arguments that they depend on, right? So if you wanted to, I don't know, describe EC2, describe image properties, then you first need an image ID. So you have to know which image IDs exist. So you have to first call list images, et cetera, et cetera. And that goes through all of AWS. So we've got a tool that like figures that out on its own uh, and it just calls all of AWS uh, and sucks all that information down, puts it in a neat queryable mm -hmm. format. Uh, and then we run queries on top of that. 
Um, the reason that we have both the event side and the uh, infrastructure side, event side is nice because it tells me when something happens, uh, at, at literally as it is happening. Whereas, uh, and that's really hard to do on the resources side, right? Because you don't know when something interesting has happened in, uh, in, uh, in advance. But the real power comes from being able to, to combine them because it's not necessarily so interesting to see, you know, if I see a, a uh, CloudWatch, oh, sorry, CloudTrail event, um, where somebody's modified some particular security group, like, okay, but I need to know what's in that security group before I know if that's interesting or not, right? Like, is that the VPN concentrator? Uh, like, if there's a new thing in the VPN concentrator, then I, a group that I care more about that than, you know, some internal security group that's locked down anyway, right? And, and so we, we combine the information from those two places in order to be able to enrich uh, incoming events and, and be able to, you know, do more, do, do ask more interesting questions. And so I guess that kind of goes into, I think, so now she mentioned in your SOC 2 blog post is that the the UI in the AWS console is sort of evil. Everything should be infrastructure as code. I don't know if you actually said it was evil, but that's what I got. There are things about the AWS console that are great. Like there are certain functionality, there's certain functionality that is either not available um, outside of it or is very, very difficult to get to without using the console. And so, for example, there are resources that, you know, there are resources that if you attempt to delete them, uh, AWS will just tell you, nope. Why? I don't know. Uh, and if you go delete them in the AWS console, then it will go find all of the dependents and like actually go do the thing that you asked for. Uh, and so there are quite a few things that are, that are significantly nicer to do in the AWS console than elsewhere. However, two problems. One, don't use the off portion of the AWS console. Like sign into it with SSO, sure. Sign into it with, uh, so you can actually sign into it with, most people don't know this. AWS makes it sound like you've got two types of credentials. You've got the username and password, which you use to sign into the console. And then you've got the access key, which you use to call the API. You can totally sign into the console through the access key. It's just that the API for it is kind of obnoxious and you don't do it through a browser at first. Um, and conveniently, AWS Vault builds, is built in for you. So you just do AWS Vault, log in, name of your profile, and it will open a browser that is already signed in. Um, it does that with AWS SDS Get Federation token uh, under the hood. You don't use the like username, password, MFA side of things. One of the things that I, you know, I, I love AWS to bits. I say this with all the uh, love in the world. Um, we use AWS internally for everything. But what the heck happened with that U2F integration? I don't know. Uh, but I, I'm not going to start talking about it. So you're saying it's better to use your single sign-on provider instead of adding an MFA in the console? Absolutely, yes. Um, uh, we're trying to get all of our clients to a point where there are literally no usernames and passwords attached to IOM users. You can have a username and password, but it's the, on the, or you can have a password, but it's on the, um, on the root user because you can't prevent that. Uh, and then we disable the root user through SCPs and all sub-accounts. A while ago, I lost one of my tokens to my AWS personal account. And so I had to go through a account recovery and I had to get my driving license notarized. And I think one of the funniest quirks was they locked my AWS account, but it was linked to my Amazon account. Uh, and so just if you ever send out AWS accounts, don't link it to your personal Amazon account. Yeah, so another thing that I find is one of the reasons that I uh, tell people not to use that um, uh, functionality is the ways that your Amazon account and your AWS account, like you would think reasonably that they are completely separate. And the ways that they are linked, I can only describe as arcane and eldritch and mildly terrifying. 
general point, don't ever, and, and but like one of the flaws, for example, is that because you can't, which I don't know if that's the problem that you ran into, but you can only ever have one UGF key, I believe, uh, 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 Yeah, I think at the time, yeah. Um, they might've fixed that by now. It's it's a mess. Don't use the, don't use the front door. So a couple of things. One, there are very specific, re- like know when you're using the console, use it judiciously. Uh, if there's a very specific reason, I'm not saying never, ever, ever touch it. Um, certainly things that are completely fine are uh, anything like if you have once you have a read-only role, yeah, sure, use the console all you like, right? Like if if you feel like the console is doing a better job of doing you know describing information than than what you're getting out of the the API calls, great, go use the console. But you know, ideally, do it for read-only stuff. The second thing that we're we're concerned about is like, well, so one, if you do it with read-write, then you're basically encouraging people to you know use the wizard and leave a bunch of stale infrastructure behind. Yeah, and and very often you know that infrastructure is optimized for being easy to get started with. It is not optimized for being locked down. You, know, you end up with with uh, quite a bit of stale infra. And yeah, that's the other reason. Which if you're gonna have people do that, fine. But that's where the multiple AWS account recommendation comes from. Like make sure that it's mm-hmm. in a, you know, in a, uh, the one thing, if there was, a, if there was a, a feature that I could get out of AWS, it would be far easier account deletion. Because right now, if you're in an AWS organization, you create an account, that's an API call. Like that's easy, it's like five seconds. And you got a full-fledged AWS account, it's great. But deleting an AWS account involves like resetting the root account, adding a password, and then adding a new billing account to it. And it's a whole mess, and it's a manual mess. And like confirming a phone number, like it's, it's a whole, you know, it's a whole thing. And if that was that was easier, especially for, for accounts that were created within the organization to begin with. Like if it was an invited account, yeah, yeah. then sure, fine, whatever. Uh, I'll go do the manual process for that. But like, if it's an account that I just created, like, come on, let me delete it. Um, and the reason for that is because like, it's still annoying to have all that like stale infrastructure floating around in your development account. Um, so I'd rather rather have that gone as well. But you know, maybe next. Yeah, week. I know. I've seen there is one project I think it's called like AWS Nuke that will. Uh, yeah. So there's. Oh, sorry. There. I thought you were talking about. A, I got excited because I thought you were talking about a different project. So there is um, there is AWS Nuke, um, which tries to delete a bunch of infrastructure, but so many different tools. Like it has the flaw, like it's always lagging behind. And usually the infrastructure that I want to try out the most is the most recent service. So it's always the one that AWS Nuke doesn't actually work for. Um, so like AWS Nuke is, is great. I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it's not AWS Nuke's fault that uh, AWS has probably launched, what, three new services since we started talking? Uh, and it's been, it's been a whole 50 minutes. Um, In another 10, and this is PRs, protectors, branches, and CICD. And I want to kind of like segue this into supply chain attacks, um, which has been a hot topic of 2020. Um, don't even necessarily know where to start such a broad topic. Just what sorts of thoughts on risks and mitigations are you seeing for supply chain attacks? So I'll start by by carving out a bunch because somebody pointed out to me recently that you know, when we say supply chain attacks, we're typically talking about software supply chain attacks and specifically in the form of, of open source software. You know, they pointed out that like, well, I'm in the hardware business. Um, try, try and make it specific enough to be uh, useful to the listener and not specific enough that it's identifying. From their perspective, they're like, yeah, we have s- supply chain attack problems and the supply chain attack problem is like the, you know, the super micro backdoor chip uh, is, is what they think of when they say, when you say that. So I'm assuming that your question is specifically about software supply chain attacks. Software, yes. yeah. Uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar, like brief summary, the idea is <clears throat> when you write any kind of software these days, you know, let's say you're, uh, you're doing it in Node or, uh, or even if it's front end, like you're relying on the NPM ecosystem or you're writing it in Python, you're relying on PyPI or you're uh, writing it in Java, you're relying on Maven Central, no matter what, you're pulling in tons and tons and tons of open source software. 
most of these ecosystems are uh, subject to this kind of attack in, in some way, some more than others. So like, for example, you know, I think uh, NPM, because JavaScript has, or MP, the NPM ecosystem has this, you know, concept of, as soon as it's, you know, left pad being sort of the, the uh, example that most people make fun of, but the, uh, you know, this, this idea of like, as soon as you got any amount of uh, software, like the bar for creating a new package is super low. And so as a consequence, like you do, you know, React, you create the, your, uh, you know, baby's first React application with, from, a, from a template and you look at your, your transitive dependency tree in NPM and it's something frightful. The same thing is to a lesser, to some extent true for Python, to some extent true for, for Java, for pretty much everything. One big difference is that with Go, you're typically vendoring. So, you know, like it's, it's harder to, you know, be, you're, you're less likely to be dependent on uh, random third party. You don't have to download the dependency all the time. But the, the core attack is yeah. basically somebody compromises the, um, uh, typically the credentials of the author. Compromise can happen a lot of ways. Another way is just like, I show up, I do two or three uh, PRs in like, you know, this uh, poor anemic project that this one person from middle of nowhere has been lovingly maintaining for the last uh, 11 years. They only ever hear from anyone when it breaks uh, and, you know, trillions of dollars of, uh, of, of business is, is dependent on this one little project. Um, and so this person comes along and you know, adds a couple of really useful PRs. And uh, they go like, hey, you know, I know that you're, uh, you're kind of overstretched. Like, uh, I'm happy to pick up maintainership. And now you have push rights to a repository that half the world depends on. Uh, and so the next thing that you do is you put some uh, malicious code in there because virtually every, you know, if you think about it, first of all, most of these, or many of these at least, require running code on installation time. So certainly for Python, like, you know, de facto, you're running setup.pys all the time. Uh, and so you could put whatever you want in there. But even if it's not installation time, it still doesn't really matter because like, why are you importing the package? Like, or why are you adding the dependency? You're about to require or import or whatever your language calls it. You're about to run some code, right? You have that malicious code and what happens? Well, um, you know, empirically what tends to happen right now is these are smash and grab attacks, right? They're super broad. Like they're going, they're very, tip they're typically not going after like a very specific company. They're trying to get, you know, as many AWS access keys as possible. And then they go mine Bitcoin with them. Right, um, because it's a clear, yeah. it's an easily automatable way to monetize having access to a bunch of compute. But as soon as it's any, you know, any more, any more targeted than that, like imagine the type of access that your median developer has uh, in your cloud environment, and imagine what kind of damage you could do with that, and you know, it might be pretty sizable, right? So the Solar Winds, which was in, I guess they're not an open source, open core company, it just happened to be that they had a open. CI/CD system. You know, it's a it's a form of uh, a, a supply chain attack, that, and this is where it gets tricky, especially in terms of remediation and like possible controls. One of the, the 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 first observation that we landed on is like we can't tell clients like we can't really mitigate this risk on the the source side. Like I can't you know I can't plausibly look at the median React application like you know most of our React's obviously super popular. Same is true for uh, among our customers. Um, and I can't like tell a customer like, hey, nice NPM dependency package tree you've got there. It would be really great if there was like 10% of the dependencies in there because that's just not how it works. Like you basically told their app, their, you told them that their app isn't allowed to exist, right? Um, and so you can't really, I mean, you can, there are ways that you can mini, like, you know, there are unforced errors there. You can kind of chip back at that a little bit and identify, for example, packages that uh, relatively few maintainers or relatively under-maintained, 
or you know have a lot of like inverse dependent like have a lot of reverse dependencies that sort of thing like you can mm -hmm. do some graph analysis on that and try to identify you know particularly risky packages but for the vast majority of the time like you're not depending on a particular package because you really want to right like the vast majority of packages are, are going to be in the transitive tree where they're you're dependent on them because someone else is so the way that we've approached this problem is we started looking at what are attackers actually doing when they get these creds and how can i mitigate that because the problem is you can't really do it from the source side you can't really significantly put a dent in the number of dependencies that people have particularly so for, I would say, for, for the NPM ecosystem, because a lot of people, like, they look at their transitive dependency trees and they haven't heard of the vast majority of packages in there, right? Because they're not pulling it in. Bobble is pulling it in. Or they're not pulling yeah. it in. React is pulling it in. Possibly transitively itself. Can't really tell them to try and make a dent in that set of dependencies because you basically just told them that their, their application is not allowed to exist. There are places where we might be able to do that. And usually they're, um, it's, it's combined with a uh, with some other form of risk mitigation to warrant the amount of effort that it takes to remove a dependent because like you're depending on this for a reason right like you're gonna presumably you're calling it a bunch of times uh, and so we 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 do stuff like we're working on uh, we're working with a company that is doing graph analysis on the open source database side um, so they're looking at things like what are packages that have relatively few uh, or relatively many uh, reverse dependencies relatively few maintainers, um, you know, what are some of the other you know, indicators of potential problems with that package, code quality issues, uh, et cetera, et cetera, both from us. So they're at attacking it from a supply chain perspective, both in the, the software supply, the open source software supply chain attack uh, vector that I mentioned, meaning the somebody gets maintainer access to a critical package and starts pushing malware through that channel, but they're also doing it through the, what are the odds that this package is gonna have significant vulnerabilities in it uh, or is it just going to break all the time and is going to cause uh, damage that way? There's a company called Phylum, uh, P-H-I-L-U-M. You know, they're very early on, but they're they're doing really, really cool work. I'm really excited to be working with them. So you get that, like, information about sort of like a package score, effectively, right? Like, how bad is this package and why? Uh, and that could be, you know, licenses, could be code quality, could be questionable uh, maintenance. You, but you also have to combine that with, you know, or we do typically with uh, with other risk factors like, hey, you're running inside your Django web application that is hard, you know, responding to all of these other requests, you're also doing, I don't know, like image resizing or something. And like, how much do I trust that image parser? Not a ton, especially when you're directly feeding it attacker control data. One, one approach to that is go find me a vuln, but that's a lot of work. So the other approach to that is, uh, how about we put it in a Lambda that has no permissions and gets called with a pre-signed S3 URL. So it literally has an empty role. And you know, then, I mean, sure, maybe something gets remote code execution. Congratulations, it's remote code execution in a completely uninteresting uh, part of the application. Bottom line, I don't think that really getting the set of dependencies down is gonna be, like, it's never the entire answer. It's an important part of the answer. And when there's enforced errors, you should go attack that. But it's not a complete picture. That's where stuff like, for example, AWS Vault comes from, or the OpenSSH. We did a blog post about OpenSSH keys and, and their password protection. That's that's where that came from as well. So we started threat modeling, like, okay, well, let's assume that's a given that there's gonna be a dependency, it's gonna get popped. We're not gonna know which one it is in advance. There's nothing that I could do about it. About the, the, I can't prevent the problem from happening because I would basically be prohibiting React or Django or some other, you know, extremely uh, common common package. 
where do we go from there? Like, what do we do after that? And AWS Vault is a perfect example because we know, we don't have to guess what people do when they get these creds, or sorry, when they get remote code execution, they're stealing AWS and GCP creds, right? And they're doing them, they're using them to mine cryptocurrency. So, you know, then from there, we started thinking like, well, what else could I do? And SSH keys is a big one because that's how you'd get, that's how I would get persistence, GitHub as SSH key based auth. So I don't have to know what your GitHub username is. I can just ask GitHub. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's what I would do. And that's where we started, you know, where I went down the rabbit hole of figuring out how the heck password encryption worked for SSH keys. Pretty for me. So you had this blog post and it kind of stuck in my mind too. And it said, it could like went over the sort of default open SSH key encryption, but you also said that adding a password is worse than not having one. Um, I just wonder if I can explain why adding a password is less secure. For what it's worth, I think that it's true, but I will admit that that was, that was a little, there's a reason it was in the title and that was clickbaity. Uh, and I'm not, not ashamed of that at all. Basic story is that the, to open SSH's credit, uh, I have no idea if they did it in response to the blog post, but when we posted it, the next release had the default key format be one that does not have the flaw that I'm about to describe. Good for open SSH the, uh, and good for all of us. Regardless, so the flaw is if you had a, so if you had a, a key, typically an RSA one, um, so you'd have the public key and the private key, and you know, you've presumably, most people have used SSH know about that because we've had to go get, you know, ID rsa.pub from your home directory and then go save it into GitHub or whatever. You have the private key and that private key is typically password protected. And the, in the old format, that password protection was not great. It was uh, MD to wit MD5 over the password. Uh, and so as a consequence, it's reasonably easy to enumerate. So it's, it's unsafe for the same reason that it would be unsafe to use MD5 as a password hash in, uh, in a database. So you would simply enumerate every possible password, you know, run it through a fast GPU that does, you know, a couple of gazillion MD5 guesses per second. And then you would, before you know it, have a, have the actual password. The reason that I said that it's worse than plain text is because at least at the time, and to some extent, this is still true. Plenty of people were upgrading. Let's say if you're on macOS, you were getting your SSH from Homebrew. Uh, it wasn't integrated into the OS keychain. If you were using Keychain, it was fine, right? Keychain doesn't have that flaw. You'd be typing in your password in, uh, all the time into something that would unlock when Keychain unlocked. And so it would be a password that you would type all the time. And so you would, of course, reuse it because why wouldn't, what other password do you use? You're gonna use your, your desktop password. And so we validated that. We asked a bunch of people and they were like, yeah, that's, that's definitely what I, it's what I did. Like, I'm not blaming anyone. Like my, absolutely my SSH key password was, I was expecting it to be the same thing as, like I was expecting to unlock it with Keychain, right? Like it's not, um, you know, I think that's smoking gun admission. So the, the problem with that is that the, it is much easier, like I can't brute force your password against Keychain, right? Because Keychain is hardened against that sort of thing. But I can absolutely brute force your password against the, your, your private key. Because that's, you know, it's just, it's crypto. Like I don't, you know, it's not, Software, like I can't, I can just try as many ones that I can asynchronously, as I want asynchronously. Um, and so the idea is that basically it produced an alternative route, an alternative route to be able to guess people's passwords that was significantly more performant than any other such route. Whereas every other system, like I don't know, one password or your keychain or Chrome or whatever it is, is going to be built, I mean Chrome often by virtue of using keychain, but you know what I mean? They have password guessing as a threat model. Uh, they're going to use better password hashes. They're going to use something like an Argon2 or whatever, or PBKDF2, or they're going to use, you know, hardware, hardware backed cryptography, like in the case of your phone, typically, or a combination of both. 
Moving away from one thing I remember at Rackspace was you'd always introduce me to lots of sort of cryptography basics. And I feel within the time, the space of cryptocurrency is also sort of blown up. And it's always like an interesting cross-section of distributed systems and cryptography. Like, what do you think we can learn from this ecosystem? This is a very challenging question. And I'm glad that you asked it because it forced me to kind of like not just be a pure cynic because it is it is no secret that I am no fan of cryptocurrency uh, for a variety of reasons. But right now, the uh, absolutely absurd energy usage of Bitcoin is certainly near the top of the list. But to your point, it did. Uh, there are a lot of fantastic things that came out of it. Uh, you know, a couple that came to mind is certainly the number of cryptographers first people who became cryptographers and then second of all cryptographers cryptographers who were gainfully employed doing really cool cryptography research and like yeah sure they were doing it for cryptocurrency but like a lot of the cryptography research ends up uh, ends up carrying over um, you know particularly some of the you know like a lot of the uh, work into modern work into signatures was prompted by by requirements of uh, fancier crypto schemes, which tended to be cryptocurrency. So, like, I don't necessarily know for a fact. Like, I don't have data to prove that you know cryptocurrency funded specific types of research that cryptocurrency paid for. But uh, you know, I think it's pretty fair to say that cryptocurrency is the the five hundred pound gorilla in the room there. And so, all sorts of really interesting crypto research, I think, you know, being paid for by uh, two things: cryptocurrency and Google. Uh, seems to be the uh, seems to be the summary. And uh, that's, I mean, that's not fair. Google is doing a lot of uh, really cool, practical applied crypto uh, research. So is Microsoft, uh, or at least Microsoft research, which is a reasonably, uh, reasonably separate arm. For me, it would have to be like a, lo a lot of advances in zero knowledge proofs, which recently I had a pet project that I'm not quite ready to uh, lift the veil on, but I had a, a pet project required a designated verifier zero knowledge proof, which, you know, I, I, all, did it exist before cryptocurrency? Yeah. Would it be as broadly available and would I probably have thought about it if it wasn't for cryptocurrency? Probably not. And I think the same thing is true for like certificate transparency. Certificate transparency is this uh, project by Google uh, where the, the mission is, what if we captured every TLS certificate that was ever created that anyone ever saw? We're going to put them in um, you know, this, this big tree and you know, we're going to make sure that the tree is designed in such a way that's uh, nice and efficient. But the consequence is that you can't present a certificate to your browser without having publicly committed to that certificate. And that, for example, addresses issues like, well, I mean, any kind of misissuance. So like, uh, it could be like a relatively benign, like, you know, a CA screwed up by, I don't know, you know, issuing a certificate with the wrong, uh, wrong duration or something. I say relatively benign because the really bad failure mode is, you know, oppressive regime uh, tries to impersonate Facebook. Uh, or tries to impersonate, you know, uh, another critical service and uses it to uh, actively hunt down journalists. Like that's sorry, a not before and a not after uh, being being minted for the wrong time. Um, that's certificate transparency. Is that a consequence of cryptocurrency? I mean, no. All the tools, like first of all, it's not it's not a like it's not solving a Byzantine consensus problem, right? Like it's not proof of work or proof of stake or whatever. It's Google is gonna. I mean. Most of, the, most of them are operated by Google. Uh, you know, Google signs stuff and you do it because Google says so. It's single writer. But I think that people wouldn't have been thinking about, but it looks like blockchain, right? Like, because every, every entry references the previous entry. You know, I don't think that people, people might not have thought of that if cryptocurrency hadn't been taking up so much headspace. As much as I'm generally not super excited about cryptocurrencies, I, uh, or at least, you know, have some questions. 
uh, it is absolutely the case that they've, been, they've funded so much cryptography research, uh, and a lot of it's pretty practical. Um, some of it's a little, a little out there, but you know, good for them. Like, I'm, I'm glad people will get a chance to work on it. And you know, what used to be a purely academic field, and now you can, you don't have to go into academia. Thanks, great answer. Talking about just cryptography, a great ebook called Crypto 101, which is sort of a introduction to sort of cryptography basics for, I guess, like application developers. Mm -hmm. You presented at PyCon, published this in 2013. If you were to make a revision, what would you add or remove from this book? First off, we've, we've been like adding parts to the book since 2013. So it, it has gotten, you know, a decent chunk of revisions. If there's specific things that I'd add, so the, the structure that Crypto 101 takes is it starts from the, the minimum viable primitive that we can talk about, literally an XOR gate, and then kind of walks you all the way up to TLS and talks about all of the primitives along the way that you needed in order to get a real crypto system, like a real useful crypto system, TLS being kind of like the ersatz for, for you know, everything else, partially because it's got kind of everything in it, right? Like it's got block ciphers, it's got authenticators, it's got signatures, key agreements, uh, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. And what's still missing now, like all of the attacks are cryptographic attacks. They're direct cryptographic attacks. They are, you've got unauthenticated CBC, let's do a bit flipping attack and then let's expand that into a, a padding Oracle attack. And, and those are those are cool, those are useful. One, I would add a couple of, of attacks that currently aren't in there, but I think are really cool. Mostly, I haven't added them because they're pretty complex. And I like the fact right now that Crypto 101 is sort of like very upfront about like, you don't you need like middle school level math at most, and most of the time, not even that, right? Uh, and some of the more attacks that um, I think are really interesting that I kind of want to add, are like, you know, they, I feel like they would come with a little bit of a warning because I don't want people to like, you know, feel, I don't want people to feel stupid because they, um, you know, they just like haven't seen a particular math thing, right? Like it's still that complicated, but I find that math scares people um, is kind of the point. And if you're, if you're there to explain it, then that's fine. But if it's a book, it's, it's kind of static. Uh, and like, you know, I don't yeah. want to dissuade people. But the two attacks that I would add is ASGCM truncated tag attacks. Uh, where basically like if you ever use a truncated tag like the total security of, of gcm against forgery is like whatever the shortest tag was uh, which is very very surprising to a lot of people there's all sorts of cool attacks on gcm that i think people don't you know don't like because it's 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 the good crypto system right like it's the one that you want uh, and most of the time it is but it's also kind of dangerous and it's safe in the very specific ways that we use it in tls uh, a lot of elliptic curve attacks because i don't think i've ever added like for example off curve attacks uh, i think i'm uh, I think I might have described that one. I forget if it was in the blog post or if I actually had the book, but that one. So those, like, there's a couple of like fancier crypto attacks that I'd love to write up. Uh, and then the second thing that I would add is protocol design. And the way that I currently build up from cryptographic primitive to primitive to primitive to primitive, building up, building up, building up, and get TLS, do that. But for once you've got all of that, build a protocol and that noise and that, um, and that the noise protocol suite uh, and go through things like you know, key compromise impersonation and stuff like that. So moving on, kind of like getting towards the end. So you're both a fellow of the Python Software Foundation and a co-founder of Closurists um, Together Foundation, which, you know, obviously two different programming languages. How do you use a programming language to, um, when you think of a problem, how do you use a programming language to solve it? Super easy. You start, you pick closure, or you make a mistake. It's, it's fine. 
Um, so uh, jokes aside, I, I do like closure. I like closure quite a bit. You know, case in point, to your, to your point, I do uh, a decent chunk of work, you know, funding the open source ecosystem for it. Do you mind if I rephrase the question and, and aim it at like clients? Because then it's not my weird proclivities. It's like, what should people who are listening to this do? Um, yeah. And the answer is, uh, of course, use closure. What, where are you paying attention? There's a lot of really good choices these days. And I think that for the vast majority of applications, there's honestly, if you're, if you're using a halfway modern framework, do whatever you want. Uh, like there's no, I don't think, so people have asked me that question in terms of like, but what should I do if I want to write secure code? Should I write Python or should I write Ruby or should I write? I think I'd Rust was my follow-up question. Don't get me wrong, I love Rust. I think Rust is fantastic. It's one of the things that I'm most excited about, like, you know, being able to put a dent in the long tail of, of, of gnarly C libraries that everyone depends on. But for our clients, I don't know that they're, like the vast majority of our clients are like, they're B2B SaaS companies. And, and I think that there is, sure, are there safety gains to be had from Rust? Yeah, but realistically, their counter, the thing that they, their alternative, their alternative wasn't C, right? If their alternative was C, then I would go, yes, definitely go right into Rust. Do not write C, do not write you know C++ either. Uh, stop telling me how, uh, if I have to hear one more time about how modern C++ is basically the same thing as Rust, then I'm just gonna, I'm, I don't know, I'm gonna take a Sharpie or like I might actually like write, write a counterexample in blood. Uh, miscellaneous uh, C++, terrible, terrible C++ misfeatures uh, that people use all the time. Am I excited about Rust? Yeah, I'm excited about Rust for replacing like parts of the Linux kernel. And we're excited about Rust for replacing, and, and you know, same thing for iOS. Um, I'm excited about, I guess they're more, more likely Swift, but Swift, sure, great, right? Like I'm excited about memory safety. Yeah. For the long tail of things that aren't memory unsafe, but like most of our clients, like they weren't gonna use C, they were gonna use Python, right? And like, if you already have like a Python, uh, like a, I don't know, a Django web, uh, a Django web application, like a, a Django REST framework or something, I can't see a super compelling reason for you to go rewrite that in Rust. It's not that I think Rust is bad. It's just like, I don't think Rust gets you anything. It's the right tool for the job. Exactly. And I guess um, if and you're in the business of CRUD, stick to something that makes it easy to create forms. And that might be Rust, right? Like I'm not saying not Rust, right? Like it's fine. I'm just saying yeah. don't rewrite it. I don't think it's like, if it's buying you something, like if you feel, for example, hey, my application has a bunch of state machines. And I am much more comfortable if I can express those in the type system and the Rust type system is way better at expressing this than Python, then go hog wild. But it's just like, I don't, you know, I, I can't remember the last time that we actively found a, a memory corruption vulnerability that was exploitable in, in, in one of our customers apps. And every time that we found it, it was the way that we told them to prevent it wasn't go rewrite the entire thing in Rust. It was go take this tiny piece of code I mentioned earlier with the Lambda, go take this tiny piece of code, go run it somewhere else where it can't do any damage because realistically, like you're not gonna, you know, re-implement libjpeg, right? Like you're just gonna keep doing what you're doing. And, and it's also like, it's also a question of like how much effort is it, right? Like if you're gonna rewrite the entire app in Rust, that's quite a bit of work. Whereas take this piece of code that you've already written and literally just like rip it out and put in this one other Southern Lambda, like it's not trivial, but it's plausibly a day's worth of work, right? Like it's, it's not that bad. During our time at Rackspace, you always had a good pulse on the latest tech and security tech. Um, what's got you excited recently? I feel like uh, depending on uh, which security person you t you you ask, uh, which might be just the same person but on different days, you're either going to get like a horribly cynical answer where it's uh, you know it turns out uh, I've I've convinced myself I've got job security for the next hundred years. You moving to the woods, or 
you know, it's uh, bright chainy. I'll tell you what I'm excited about, but it's not necessarily an endorsement or a counter endorsement for that matter. It's just a very, co- like be- me being very cognizant of just because something is exciting to me does not necessarily mean that it's like the most useful thing for anyone to go deploy tomorrow. I do get excited about sort of like, you know, the, the, the little wins, right? Like the, the, the every time that we can figure out a way to make, you know, our IAM minimization strategy slightly easier to get started with. Like, I, I'm, you know, we talked about AWS Vault. Like, I love that entire document because it just like, it's, it's so easy to get started. Like the, the material real world impact of what, of that has been so much greater than if I just like described what the beautiful end state, you know, eschatological uh, version of that is. I try to be excited about, you know, cool things like, uh, you know, I, I'm doing a lot of AWS IAM work recently. That's why I keep talking about AWS IAM. Um, in terms of things that I like every time that I play with them, I am reminded that the world is uh, is full of beauty is had a reason to play with the Linux perf subsystem and eBPF uh, the other day. Most of the time don't get an opportunity to use it because well, I mean, because we're running on like highly restricted environments like Lambda and Fargate, which most of the time, absolutely the right call for us. But, you know, it's still, it's still cool to be able to play with those. I am super excited, since we talked about Rust earlier, yeah, like Rust and the Linux kernel. I am super excited about cutting down the number of, um, the number of places that I have to care about code execution uh, with, uh, within the kernel. You know, uh, I know other things that we've been messing with recently, talking about kernel uh, exposure, GVisor. So GVisor is a user space program by Google that basically emulates portions of the Linux kernel API. So like you make syscalls into GVisor instead of making syscalls into, um, you know, the Linux uh, kernel. That's that's really cool from a sandboxing perspective. Like that has all sorts of great advantages. So I'm kind of excited about that, but it's, you know, it's a niche application, right? Like there's, there's a lot to be excited about. Most recently, one that, okay, hey, here's one that's applicable to a lot of people. GitHub Actions. If you're using it with AWS, they, we could put a link in the show notes, I assume. So recently they made it possible to uh, directly integrate between GitHub and AWS so that you could assume a role directly instead of needing to like save an access key in GitHub secrets. Cause like, come on, there's it's a matter of time before that, before that's gonna leak somewhere. Like it always, I mean, I, I'm sure it's safe, but like it always gives me the heebie, gives me the heebie-jeebies when there's a system that has like, cause also it has like admin access half of the time, right? Cause like people are using it to deploy infrastructure and stuff. So it's like, it's not, it's not a, it's not a mild cred, right? Like it's, it's, it's star star, but yeah, you know, a lot to be excited about. It's hard to pick. Cool. That's great. So just closing up, um, what are your th- top three lesser known tips to stay secure? Um, yeah, so my, my, you know, three favorite ones, I mean, we talked about a bunch of them already, but certainly AWS vaults, like it, it's hard to oversell, I think AWS vaults for how easy it is and, and the return on investment you get from it. WebAuthn and U2F keys, which uh, again, I imagine most of your listeners are, are maybe not that unknown, but uh, it's just the, the reason I bring it up is like AWS vault, just the ruthless efficiency of it. Like the number of attacks that are completely irrelevant um, because like, you know, Google has, Come out and said, phishing is dead. We have killed it. Uh, like, you know, WebAuthn did it. Like, we're good. The third one, that one's, uh, that one I'm going to have to think about. But uh, I don't know, maybe next time. Maybe next time. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, LVH. I've had a great time with you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. This podcast was created by Teleport. Teleport allows engineers and security professionals to unified access for SSH servers, Kubernetes clusters, web applications, and databases across all environments. To learn more, visit us at goteleport.com.